Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 201 of the Fun With Cars Formula One podcast for coverage of the, oh gosh, British, Hungarian, and German Grand Prix. I'm Robin Warner. And I am Jim Lau, and we have had a tour of Europe since you last heard from us. Of course, that previous race was the Austrian Grand Prix, where we had time to uh, get together and do a show. But yes, lots has happened. Basically, Lewis Hamilton has won several times, all three times for all three races, plus the Austrian one before that. Lewis, I think the number is now six out of seven that he's won. In many ways, lots and lots has happened. But if you take a step back, it kind of looks like a lot of the same, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's, you know, having multiple races to talk about. I did take a look back and just scrolling through the results... I can see Nico Rosberg won the first four in a row, Austria, uh, sorry, Australia, Bahrain, China, and Russia. Then Max Verstappen, of course, so the one time the Mercedes crash out, uh, they crash each other out. They did not win, obviously. That was, of course, Max Verstappen. Then Lewis, Lewis, Nico, Lewis, 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 Lewis. So lots of Lewis lately. Of course, he's in the lead of the championship. Another way to look at that is to say that the Mercedes have won every race except that one where they crashed each other out. And of course, they were in the lead of that one. So it was very likely they could have gone on to victory there. So if a casual fan were to turn on and sort of just check in with Formula One, say, oh, how's that season going? Is this, you know, the Mercedes winning all the time? The answer is, yeah, pretty much, yeah, except that one time that they crashed each other out. But you start digging into the details, and of course, it gets a lot more interesting. And because it's been quite a while since we've podcasted, we actually have a little bit of listener feedback we were going to offer. It's not terribly relevant these days, but... Uh, We had a nice note from Jamie Bell, who started talking about how sick he was of the pro-Hamilton media coverage that was going on in the UK, and that he thinks, basically, that Rosberg's not getting a fair shake. This, of course, was in regards to the collision they had at the end of the Austrian Grand Prix. Lewis Hamilton came out on top of that. It went his way, and... Nico Rosberg was indeed penalized for blocking Hamilton, not allowing him to turn the corner. That was the last discussion we had. It was interesting, but that was that was nearly a month ago, too. So it's kind of weird to, I feel like, oh, we're bringing that up again. But thank you to Jamie and definitely good points. He also said some kind things about the podcast, which we appreciate. And speaking of which, John Matthew, also John Matthew the fourth, excuse me, Uh, congratulated us on making it to 200 episodes, which we really appreciate him thanking us for. Yeah, it's been quite the ride. I think, where did he say here? There have been lots of changes in your personal lives over the last nine years, giving you lots of cute excuses to stop podcasting. Great to see you keep going on. Yeah, it, it, (laughs) we appreciate that very much. It's getting harder, (laughs) you know, as life gets more complicated with the children's and jobs and all those kinds of fun things. Yeah. And as we record, uh, you are still on Baby Watch 2016. You are, uh, you know, eagerly awaiting the arrival of your son, but he has not yet arrived. My little boy just turned a month old uh, a couple days ago. So uh, yeah, that's <laughs> lots gone on since the last few, uh, last few shows worth. But uh, probably by the time this episode is released, uh, your son may be in the world. So uh, keep an eye out on that or on Facebook or whatever for that. But uh, yeah, it's a lot going on as we've talked about. Uh, another thing, you know, that I keep noticing taking a step back from the season and just looking back at it a little bit, the idea of flip-flopping has seemed to, to come up quite a bit. So remember all the way back to the beginning of this year when we had not knockout qualifying, but the elimination qualifying of uh, running down to the last driver on track and, you know, having the sessions kind of peter out? That was the well-intended but 
terribly executed idea. Right. And so that was turned around. And we have, we've had this uh, radio ban. Then that was, it didn't I mean start that severely at the beginning of the season. And it was really clamped down on, okay, no driver coaching. We really need to bring this radio ban down, except for only in cases of safety. And then, of course, we had some sort of ludicrous examples back and forth of people going around the rules and talking about driver coaching a little bit. And then Nico Rosberg, for example, who had to take a penalty for an amount of coaching. And, of course, then... Jensen Button having a call yeah, about the Jensen pedal. Button's was the most blatant one because the rule stated that you know you couldn't bring up anything on the radio that could be contrived as driver coaching in any way unless it was safety related. Well, Jensen Button's brake pedal was going to the floor. He effectively had heavily compromised brakes, and then he was penalized for being coached how to get through it. Right, which everyone I think could pretty much agree with was silly. And then after that, the radio ban was reversed entirely, such that rather than saying, okay, well, these things are okay, this kind of coaching is okay, this kind of coaching is not okay, it's like, you know what, okay, screw it, you guys, on the radio, anything goes, have fun, go off and and do your thing. So that sounds like something that you should be pretty happy about, because it's something you've been writing about and uh, lobbying about since this rule has has happened. And uh, uh, so are you pleased with that decision? I am, yes. The idea, the original formulation wasn't a terrible one. Like, let's not encourage driver coaching and try to almost program the drivers to make these tiny little adjustments at these tiny points and to always monitor exactly what the competition's doing. It almost becomes less of a spirited competition among brave drivers and more of a statistical analysis uh, software program (laughs) that you're seeing play out. What actually happened was the drivers and the engineers couldn't have any kind of reasonable conversation. And what became driver coaching got so large and broad that almost anything was considered against the rules to discuss. So the radio rendered itself useless and almost comical. And there were these weird discussions between driver and engineer about, please give me some hints. Can't give you hints. And it just seemed to snowball and get worse and worse and worse. So what is allowed on the radio maybe isn't perfect, but it is a drastic improvement over what we had before the rules were rescinded. Probably the best news I can say out of this is that it's clear now what the rules are. And the rules are, there's no rules. Say whatever you want over the radio. So that, I think, was the biggest thing that was annoying for the teams and then even for us as fans. Every time the team wanted to say something to the driver or the driver wanted to ask a question, there had to be this back and forth of almost like check with the legal department to say, oh, can we say that? Is this, is this okay? Is this considered coaching? What can we say? So there was just any response had to be delayed by as much time as it took to analyze, is this response going to be okay? Can I tell them this? Should I try to make some kind of coding around this message or should I just tell them what to do? All that, that just is, is nonsense, right? And in any kind of sporting environment, I feel like that's just sort of a silly workaround to, uh, to try to think about the overhead of, of talking about, is this something that we can talk about or is this not? Or how should I answer this question? Or do I need to tell the driver no or just try to change his question? Because, of course, the driver is in the middle of driving a race by definition here. So the good news is that now that's just it's one less thing that the drivers and teams have to worry about. If there's a safety issue, is this considered a safety problem? Is this considered whatever? Is it considered coaching? And then the teams can go back to doing as much or as little coaching as they feel relevant for their drivers. And uh, the fact that we get to hear that as fans, I think, is is a benefit because then we can probably have a sense for, hey, there's this one guy that keeps winning, but you know what? He's he's on the radio, you know, a bunch of times during the course of the race and his team's telling him when to speed up, when to slow down and all that. So that's a little bit less impressive to me than maybe this other driver who's having good success, but is not getting that kind of coaching. 
but that's a call they can make based on the different driver personalities and so on. I mean, thinking back to Kimmy's famous, you know, leave me alone. I know what to do. That's something that we all appreciate about Kimmy as a driver and we think it's fun. So it's not that, you know, nobody has to do a certain amount of coaching, you know, but anything is allowed. And now it's just between the teams and the drivers and the engineers. And I think ultimately that's a good thing. We'll see if over the course of the rest of this season and in the future, if that changes and we see that there's just so much coaching that we think it's tedious and all that. But at this point, like we talked about with the season right now, like Mercedes just really has the pace advantage all the way around. It looked like Ferrari was kind of knocking at the door, but they've really slipped back in the last few races. It's been pretty clearly almost a qualifying uh, and verbatim in the last few races, Mercedes, Mercedes, then both Red Bulls, then both Ferraris and then everyone else. And in, in, you know, kind of orders that shift around a little bit, like you talked about a little bit with Force India and Williams and, and so on. But if the team can help Ricardo or Verstappen help get an edge and, and, you know, find it in to catch up to a Mercedes and potentially pass them, then that's interesting and that's worth it. And that's exciting because it really seems like those cars are at a pace deficit. We have heard about potential more power coming to the Renaults. So that would be exciting for Red Bull, of course, for the Tag Heuer's as well. It's exciting to mix something up one way or another. And I guess if there's coaching going on between Nico and Lewis, well, who cares? You know, one of them is probably going to win anyway. And to see a close fight is better than to see, you know, one driver just take away with it. So I don't think it's really a problem. And I think it, it's good that it's a simple rule rather than a further sort of revision of a clarification of an update to a previous update, a patch of a thing. You know, it's like now yeah. the radio, that, say whatever you want and decide what you want to do and go from there. So I think I'm overall very happy about this new development. Yeah, simple works best only make it more complicated when you absolutely have to the radio ban was to the point that the teams and drivers didn't understand it so what hope does the average fan have of having any clue of what's going on and why it was just it was theater at this point it wasn't any real competition don't worry the fia is still giving us plenty of fodder to talk about because they are just evolving silly rules with track limits now. And I think this is the next thing to talk about. I have been much more of a pro, just drive wherever you want guy. And you've been a little bit more of, no, 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 we should respect the track limits. Again, I think what we're seeing is the FIA's approach to solving this problem is complicated and inconsistent and illogical. So now we have some objectivity making its debut, you could say, by having electronic sensors that can tell whether the car has gone four off or not. It's only been trial, and they're only putting it in some corners, and they have, what is it, three warnings, and then they get a penalty. My biggest problem with it right now is it's still complicated. I much prefer that if you don't want the drivers to exceed the limits, build the track so that it's not good to exceed the limits. As in, I mean, we're not going to reshape all the corners of all the tracks. So as in just having sort of what walls or grass or what do you think in oil slicks off to the side of the track? Yeah. Yeah. You know, could be, you know, spinning turtle shells, whatever. No. So like, okay, a, a little patch of grass at the end of the curb and then you get to the asphalt runoff. Or one thing that was fascinating was the high curbs that everyone complained about, about Aust at Austria. In many ways, those were a pretty effective method. It's like, well, if you go off too much, you're going to potentially bang up the car just like you would if we were on a street course and you hit a wall. I'm not saying that's the best solution either, but the best solution is giving the drivers full uh, authority to drive wherever they want around the track and make the fastest way around the track staying within the limits. That is the ideal. 
Now, there are occasions when you can't meet that ideal. The best example I have is the chicane at Monaco after you go through the tunnel. I was just thinking that. Yeah, it's like, well, just go straight out, and that's fast. That's way faster right. than going around at a exactly. But in those rare circumstances, in those conditions, drivers in general respect it. And the curbs, the secondary curbs are quite high there. And it doesn't tend to bang up the car, but it definitely unsettles it. So it's definitely a risk to do that consistently to try to just bound over them. And in those kind of cases, you can penalize. But we're just getting to this point where on certain corners, if the FIA is watching, you can get penalized for going over. But other drivers might not. They will look at it more closely in qualifying than they will during the race. But in some tracks, they'll look at it more closely during the race than they will in qualifying. It's the root causes this complication that we are talking about. And for me personally, especially with my driver kind of mentality, is let the drivers do what they want. And if you come up with a rule that's clever, try it and be consistent with it and see if people get used to it. Oh, one more example before I hand it off to you, Jim. Formula One about, I don't know what it is, 12... 12, 13 years ago now, roughly speaking, implemented the mandatory use of the Hans device, okay? A lot of drivers were against it at first, and most notably Michael Schumacher. He was like, I like to tilt my head as I'm in the corners, kind of like the way I did when I was a go-karter. He didn't want to give that up. But within a year, everyone was used to it. No one thought twice about it. Now it's as standard as a helmet in many, many race series. No one would think twice about wearing one. That is a rule that people didn't like at first, but they stuck with it and got used to it and it became a thing. But to keep changing and interacting and adding complication to rules, that is the real killer. Yeah. So uh, a few things about track limits and so on. Part of what I think you and I both don't like about the current setup is the nature of sort of the electronic enforcement where it's not, you know, we we can tell if someone has lost time by, you know, at, at the very least looking at the lap times on TV, looking at where the cars are on track, is one guy closer to another guy, all those kind of things. Whereas it's not as easy to tell from how many strikes does the driver have. And either here you get up to three strikes and then after that you get a penalty if you do again or whatever. But that's, if there is a track that is the way the curbs and everything are, it means that there's no actual pace disadvantage to going off and, and running wide, but it's only to do that with a penalty and you get three strikes to do it then I feel like the cunning strategists will say, okay, let's try to use those three chances throughout the race. And so, you know, everyone would want to end up being with with their last strike where it's like, if there is an advantage to do that, then yeah, okay, you get three free ones where you can run off the track, run wide. So you'd want to end the race with zero in the bag because if you didn't do that, then you left that little bit amount of lap time on the table. So it's, I guess that's a little bit clever, but that's not the kind of thing we tune into Formula One for. I agree that having it be something that is an obvious disadvantage to running that way so the drivers aren't trying to do that, and trying to play games with just barely getting there without getting penalized seems like a, a reasonable way to go. And yeah, I you know, I seem like the curbs, uh, I thought you were more negative about the curbs at the time, about everything, you know, all these cars getting broken suspension and stuff like that. But I keep thinking back to watching Lewis Hamilton's pole lap around Austria, where he was the fastest of everyone the whole weekend, you know, the fastest lap set around the whole entire track, and the, he stayed off the curbs to do that. So it's not yeah. the case that there was a faster way and that, oh yeah, you had to do the curbs and it was just a matter of, you know, keeping the car on the edge. But it was like, nope, apparently the fastest way around in that car with that driver, which was pole position, did not involve the car running deep on the curbs. So that may have been some people that had slightly wrong ideas about where you'd gain speed and how much you know, power you could t put down or whatever, but also taking that chance of, hey, I'm not going to run on the curbs, so I'm going to, you know, save my car a little bit. But you know, maybe he gave up a little bit of pace, but eh, seems like he was still faster than everyone else. So that's that's all the pace you could ask for. You're absolutely right. At first, when I saw the curbs, I was like, oh boy, these curbs are too high. They're damaging suspension. That's no good. 
in hindsight and in retrospect and when considering this bigger picture of exceeding track limits, I see the value in the in the curbs. So I was wrong. I was wrong about those curbs. And I think that it's still, they weren't perfect, right? You don't want curbs that break suspension and in some cases catastrophically break suspension because that's kind of a weird false penalty to have like, oh, there's some speed bumps, but they'll destroy the car. That's not ideal, but curbs that are genuinely big enough that upset the balance of the car and really disincentivize the drivers to go over them, that is something I certainly support, especially if that's instead of these weird electronic limiters and people monitoring the drivers and then there's warnings and then eventual penalties. And just as you stated, the most cunning drivers kind of almost think of that as like a weird sort of quasi push to pass where like, I can exceed the track limits three times and then I'll get penalized. That gets into weird complication again. So yeah, I was wrong about the curbs. Otherwise, I still feel pretty strongly about the track limits. Yeah, and it's important to remember the the curbs were not on track. So sort of think about that from the driver's point of view. It's like, well, if I stay on the track, I don't have to worry about curbs because that's not where the curbs are. And they're right at the outside edge. If you make a mistake and you end up in the curbs, then you don't want to be, you know, shattering your car seems like a bit much. But that's part of what happened is like, hey, you're not on the track. As we talked about on some tracks, the edge is a wall. Think Monaco, think Baku, think some of these tracks where people don't complain about, oh, I wish I could have driven through that wall. I mean, maybe they would actually say that. But <laughs> one of the potential features you mentioned there was actually electronic limiters or something as, as a bad thing. I, I don't know. I was thinking about that for a second because a lot of uh, a lot of like, you know, friendly kind of family go-kart tracks and stuff like that will have sort of a limiter on the cart, right? If, if you go off track and the video games do this too right where they want to penalize you so you can't just set some crazy lap time by uh, by bounding through the grass through a chicane or whatever where it will just slow down the vehicle for either a certain amount of time or even if you just do a quick four off it'll it'll kind of keep the car slow for five seconds and then speed back up or something like that that to me seems better than the current setup which would be like what you exceed the track limits three times you get a warning from your team you exceed it the fourth time and then probably get assigned with drive-through penalty. So if you're going to take a pit stop, then you have to wait an initial five seconds. If you don't have a pit stop between then and the end of the race, then it's just five seconds added to your time. So then you're kind of racing the guy behind you, but also five seconds before the guy in high. You know, it's, it's, that's not clear to the fans, to people in the stands, or whatever. But if a driver were to go four off in a corner that was, you know, or let's call it any corner, rather than sort of having certain certain corners which are specified yeah, as no, danger zones, it's like just say, okay, if you go off the call track, it any corner, it's right, all or none, absolutely. Then then. Um, if your electric power was cut and it was just an internal combustion, so you were down a couple hundred horsepower or some kind of limiter put on for a few seconds or whatever. So it's like, oh, I can see that guy ran wide because he was trying to get up to opportunistic, went far off. Oh, look, his car slowed down and then he had to get back up to speed. That is at least something that you can see on TV. You could see from the stands. And then it's clear because this guy was going slow, that allowed someone to get around him. And he's probably going to try not to do that next time. But it's not this question of, oh, is he going to get a penalty? And we have to wait a couple laps to see if there's a penalty handed down. And if there is a penalty handed down, oh, that's five seconds. But where is the guy? Oh, the guy behind him, six seconds. Okay. So that, I think that that's a lot more complicated if there were to be some kind of technical solution instead of, which for safety reasons would make more sense, right? Because you're a lot less likely to get injured by a car going slowly than, you know, the, if your suspension is being shattered or there's a wall there. So that at least would be, it does kind of seem hokey, kind of like DRS, but Again, like DRS, it's at least something you can see. You can see the advantage. You can see when someone goes off, oh, look, all four wheels went off. The system recognized that correctly, and now his car is going slow for a few seconds, and then they go on their way. And if they determine that that's the fastest way around, then that's kind of dumb if that is the fastest way around. But it should be timed you know, and set up in such a way that that is not an advantage to be gained. And that way, anytime you go wide, your car gets slowed for a little bit. It's a little hokey, but you know, I guess maybe not the worst idea in the world. 
No, it, it's definitely not. <laughs> the FIA has proved that that's not the worst idea in the world. Yeah, I guess that's a pretty low bar. <laughs> I could get behind that. Like, here, here's an idea for you. If this electric limiter was across the outside of the entire track and you crossed that line, you lost all electric power for a full second. So all of a sudden you were down... What is it these days? It's over 200 horsepower worth of electronic energy. You lose that for a second. That would result on the track of a serious car length or two of lost pace and could make a difference in driving. I could get behind that consistent automatic electronic barrier that slowed you down. I could get behind that because you can make the argument that the tracks would be a tiny bit safer to not have that patch of grass first. We go back and forth on where is the line for the ideal between the purity of the sport and the forward motion of technology. I would rather keep the purity of the sport on this one and just make it naturally, physically harder for the car to be faster outside the boundary limits of the track as opposed to an electronic governor of sorts to keep it outside of the track. But I will repeat, the idea you just proposed is vastly better than what we are currently seeing from the FIA right now. I'll put in the show notes as a link to a, a good interview with Charlie Whiting about actually the track limits and the radio ban, and then the, the uh, Halo proposals as well. And that's another thing we haven't talked much about, but of course there's been the Halo has been tested, and then the smart screen or safe screen, I forget what they call the other kind of windshield option for driver head protection, and those were being talked about for 2017. As a lot of our followers probably know, those have been pushed back and will not be introduced for 2017. So it's a pretty interesting discussion to kind of hear what Charlie Whiting, race director, has to say about the radio ban and how, yeah, okay, driver coaching is back on, but that's easier to police and that's net positive, they think, for the sport and so on. So I'll, I'll put that article. It's a pretty long uh, interview, but I think it's it's interesting to kind of read through kind of what the thinking is behind uh, one of the top delegates of the FIA on this stuff. Do you have a, do you have a strong feeling one way or the other on the, on the halos specifically as a form of head protection? Head protection is not important. <laughs> At least that you can remember. <laughs> remember what huh huh it's tough i i ultimately it's weird i guess i'm kind of becoming an all or nothing kind of person on this podcast that's not on this episode that's not the point but i kind of feel like if they want to give the drivers head protection just give them canopies give them full cockpits yes they're open wheel cars and they're open cockpit cars but the current fleet of Le Mans prototypes are wickedly quick really beautiful machines extremely quick I think I said that already. I'll say it one more time. They're very quick and they have canopies. It's totally fine. And the driver's heads are protected. That's a more beautiful and indeed the safest possible way to move forward. I think we can get used to not seeing the driver's helmets all the time. I, I really don't think that's a big problem. And in fact, there are some added benefits to that because if Formula One cars had canopies, that's more opportunities to place cameras for television and for the viewers to have different angles that they might otherwise not be able to have. Change to canopies is a pretty major change from what we've always had with Formula One. There are, of course, I think, some really, really cool-looking Le Mans prototype cars and GT cars and things like that that are all, not all, but mostly closed cockpit, and those have fenders and stuff as well. Yet, they can set very impressive lap times, have really amazing grip, they get enough visibility out of the front. Some of them have, you know, camera systems to see rearward and some, some really interesting technology. So, there's some cool stuff that can happen, but... I feel like that's so different from what Formula One has always been about. You're right in that you get additional spots for cameras. I had that thought with the, whenever the, the current generation of IndyCar was introduced, that has a bit of a, I guess you'd call it a fender, some, a little fairing behind the rear wheels. Yeah. And they put cameras on there. And that's actually a pretty cool angle to see 
over the rear wheel. And then you can see the movement of, the, of both of the wheels on that one side. And then usually a bit of the driver's hands on the wheel. That was a really cool angle to see that you just never really got before because Formula One cars, of course, have no body work behind the rear tires. It was, it was kind of an interesting thing, which is an IndyCar mix of still technically open wheel, but with a sort of fairings in front of and behind the uh, in front of and behind the tires. And that did make for a cool camera angle. There's also, of course, the safety angle of wheel to wheel contact from one vehicle to another that, you know, cars are less likely to get kind of flipped up over over each other from the counter rotating wheels uh, touching each other. So there's some advantages there, but it does very severely change the character, for want of a better term of a Formula One car. So that's that's a decision that I think would have to be taken very seriously. Uh, sounds like they are taking the Halo thing pretty seriously, not just for the style and the character. I mean, it's all great to have the style of a Formula One car, but we really don't want to see any of the drivers get killed or get seriously injured, especially in something like, you know, the Jules Bianchi crash, where, of course, it was just shouldn't have happened for so many reasons and just everything went wrong all, all at the same time. The Jules Bianchi accident was a classic case of tolerance stacking. One thing and then another and then another, and all of a sudden you had this really catastrophic event happen. We did make some changes. The FIA made some changes that all of us can actually get behind. The virtual safety car is a result of the Jules Bianchi accident. That is a smart use of modern technology. It's been a benefit to have that as opposed to not have that. And there's a little bit more of a breathe easy feeling like, okay, that's mitigating a real problem. The canopies, you're right. And the head is still exposed. It wasn't a Formula One, but uh, the IndyCar Justin Wilson accident from last year that took his life, that was the type of thing where more head protection very likely would have saved him. But again, that's an occasion where the halo might not have helped because it was a heavy object that hit him, and that heavy object could have potentially slipped through something like the halo or something similar to it. And that's where, if we're going to go down this road, kind of go full canopy. Looking forward, can we talk silly season for a moment? Uh can't think of a better time than the present. So it's not that silly. <laughs> yeah, it, no, it's things really kind of petered been out, right? Genuinely disappointing. Nico Rosberg has resigned. He now has a new contract with Mercedes. Kimi Raikkonen resigned. Right. That was the that was the big one. Th- yeah, those was, are, those two are the big ones because of course the Mercedes is the most coveted seat, and there was some question about oh Rosberg all unhappy, and what if X Y and Z happen, and then it sets a whole chain of events. And then the other question, of course, was Ferrari because it's like oh Kimi's kind of old and he hasn't been doing that great. So if he doesn't sign, Kimi's not old at all. He's kind of young. He's maybe not old enough yet to be a proper Formula One driver. Correct. If, if anything, those are the you know a Ferrari seat is always a coveted thing, and it's always a very a special slot in the lineup that a lot of drivers would want to take and would move around, you know, kind of who, oh, if Ricardo moves there, then who gets into his seat? And it's a whole cascade thing. But both of those lineups are staying the same. And so far, Red Bull Racing, their drivers are contracted for next year as well. So the those are the top three teams. Very clearly, they're all filled and under contract. Yeah, it does get to the fourth team. I think the biggest question mark is Williams. They are currently fourth in the championship, although who's fifth in the championship and nipping at their heels and doing impressively well as Force India. And we'll talk about them in a second. Well, let's talk, but, well, Sahara Force India real quick. Checo and Nico Hulkenberg both have contracts for next year. So, of course, those can change. And especially at this level of the grid, there's a better likelihood that somebody might buy Checo out of his contract or whatever. But for now, Sahara Force India looks like they're going to stay the same. But Williams, right now, neither driver has a contract for next year with the team. So Williams is potentially up for grabs for both seats. Now, I want to go back to Force India for a second. Sergio Perez actually is really well funded by his own personal sponsors, Telmex and the like. I happen to know because he was sponsored by them since uh, he was racing me and I was faster. 
Anyway, there's rumors that he is going to go to Renault, and because of the sponsorship setup, he has a little bit more wiggle room than other drivers may to get out of a contract or change a contract or there's terms of a contract or whatever. So he's a little bit up in the air, a little bit less certain to stay at Force India than the contract might stay. But going back to Williams, you're absolutely right. Both drivers are up, and a lot of momentum is shifting towards Massa not having the race seat in 2017. Botas, that's a harder one to see going. As recently as last year, Botas was being coveted by Ferrari. So for Williams to be not that interested would be a bit of a surprise. But I think Massa's days are numbered. Yeah, I get that impression as well. It's been a tough season for Felipe Massa. And especially in the most recent round in Germany, uh, he had a problem with the car that was just some problem. And he said, oh, it's undrivable. I can't make it work. And they took pictures and they checked out the car and whatever. And they sort of said, well, we don't know what the problem is, but apparently it's not working. And he said similar sort of just a combination of bad luck and just sort of puzzling performances and stuff like that. So it seems like, yeah, I would be... Inconsistent performances. Inconsistent is a good term for it. Yeah, he's clearly got some pace and can set in good lap times every once in a while and and can have decent races and, and score points. But just overall, yeah, inconsistent is, I think, the term. He's getting almost old enough to start a sports car career. So he may be, uh, you know, looking to change up what he's doing. Botas, I put in a similar category as kind of Nico Hulkenberg, where they came on oh, the scene. Oh, very, I very much agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. And had so much promise and was like, oh man, he's going to be at the smaller team for a year or two and then just get picked up maybe by Ferrari in both cases, actually, or whatever. There's a lot of ways you could kind of see that trajectory going, but then didn't always have the reliability. And then just for whatever circumstances of timing and luck and just the way the world has gone have stayed at their lower level teams for longer and then it's kind of a question of okay is that still is he still the young hotshot i mean obviously max verstappen is has been super impressive and if he's on the market then that kind of changes how attractive a botas or hulkenberg might be so botas um, seems to have settled in at williams pretty well if there's not a higher dollar offer coming from another team then maybe he would do well to stay with williams and you've still got the mercedes powertrain and they've still they're still you know knock at the door every once in a while like you talked about and, and uh, claire williams And Claire Williams, deputy team principal, is a lovely person as well. So there's lots of good reasons for him to stay there. But the real thing is, where are you going to go that's going to be better? You know, Red Bull is so much more a fan of hiring up through their own ranks and going through their young driver teams and all that. Otherwise, it's Ferrari, which we've talked about. Mercedes seems set for a while, unless, you know, there's some crazy falling out. All of a sudden, a a Mercedes seat opens up or whatever. Third cars are introduced again. Who knows? Well, no, there's the dark horse, Renault. Renault is currently ninth in the championship, but... They are now going to be a full factory effort, and I do believe it was this 2016 season. This car was originally built for the Mercedes powertrain, and they threw a Renault lump in that thing. So the next year's chassis will almost have to be better because it will be designed from the beginning to carry a Renault power plant, a power unit, I suppose we're calling them now. That Renault power unit will almost certainly be better than it currently is. So Renault could be a more competitive team and because it's factory-backed, could be attractive to drivers, even though this year they're very low in the standings. That's the one place where we could see movement, and that goes back to the rumors we heard about Sergio Perez. Yeah, that definitely could be a good one. And for now, Renault has nobody under contract for 2017, so that is, at the moment anyway, pretty wide open. Julian Palmer and Kevin Magnussen, it's a little hard to tell how well they're doing in a car like that, which... As you say, you know, the uh, car wasn't designed for the power unit that's in it. So we'll have to see. Uh, next year's Renault is as promising as it sounds like. But uh, as we can tell from the Red Bull performance, the Renault engine and power unit as a whole does seem to have gotten uh, really you know, very close to the Mercedes pace. And uh, with a factory effort of building a car made for that power unit, that really could be a force to be reckoned with. 
we'll see if Kevin Magnuson may stay on. Maybe he's the junior guy and they bring in a higher level guy like Botas or Checo Perez or whatever. So that that is, I guess, kind of the sharp end of the silly season. And then even Haas, you know, they've for a rookie year have done, I, I would say, spectacularly well with scoring, a, a, you know, several points finishes. I would say Romain Grosjean seems to be doing pretty well there. Esteban Gutierrez, I would say less so. Uh, that's kind of the question of if he kind of stays on through the Ferrari connection as, you know, treating this Haas as a junior Ferrari team and then grooming him for that. But technically, I guess neither of those drivers have contracts for 2017 yet either. So uh, Haas is kind of an interesting one. Uh, not, uh, you know, as many people are calling a top team or whatever, but just, you know, one of the pieces in the whole thing. They had a very impressive rookie season. I think you can say a, a team rookie season. They jumped in and they did take a novel approach. Gene Haas, definitely more than any other team owner, looked at what was allowed in the rules in terms of what you had to build yourself and what you could buy from another team and was like, gosh, you can buy a lot of stuff. We'll just buy it all. So that is a Ferrari light. And Delara, the experienced chassis builder, played a pretty significant role in that first generation chassis. So it was a very clever interpretation of the rules that are given of what makes a constructor a constructor. I think that was very intelligent on his part, so that's worth applauding. But we didn't actually answer the Williams question. I'm wondering, and tell me if you like this, I'm with you. I think there's a reasonable chance that Botas will stay. But what if Jensen Button comes on board and kind of bookends his career with the Williams? Let's not forget that it was the year 2000 that Jensen Button's rookie season started at Williams. We probably have listeners that weren't born then. That's not the craziest thing in the world, that, uh, that there may be listeners to this podcast right now who were not alive when Jensen Button started driving a Formula One car. Imagine that. <laughs> uh, no, I, I would rather not imagine that. Yeah, that's been talked about. And McLaren, of course, does have Alonso. Did he have a three-year deal or was it two years? I don't know. But it was Fernando does have a contract for 2017 with McLaren. Jensen Button does not. And that, of course, has been talked about. So that could be an interesting tie-in. I mean, we haven't talked much about McLaren Honda in a while. It seems like they're getting closer, but not, you know, as fast as anyone hoped. And it's, it's just kind of, you know, continued on. So I still have hope. You're just being impatient, dude. They're improving. They're getting stronger. I think they're talking about another big engine upgrade for Spa. I, I don't know. I think the process is taking longer than Honda hoped, but they are absolutely relentless and they will sooner or later be there. It's the power of earth dreams, I think, is what's, uh, what's fueling that whole thing. So hopefully that comes together well for them. I'm not impatient to the, to the point that I'm saying, I'm giving up on them. McLaren Honda will never have a car that wins a race ever. I'm just sort of like, it's two seasons now of middling performances and Honda also not supplying anyone else with a powertrain so that we get a sense for the parity of how much is the car, how much is the engine, and how does that work as a whole program? It's a little hard to say. But anyway, yeah, I could imagine Button being pretty fed up with, you know, as we can hear on some of the radio transmissions, being pretty fed up with the state of the car and how many times he's asked to do either to retire the car or to drive only in certain gears or say, oh yeah, you've got no brakes now. Because he's like, oh yeah, bloody marvelous. This will be like, it's been a tough road for Jensen. Alonzo, for whatever reason, seems to be, I don't know if he's more zen about the whole thing. He's just kind of like, oh, well, this is my thing. I'll just drive this thing right now. I mean, if Alonzo could get a ride somewhere else, move over and just do something fun for a year before he uh, goes on to sports cars or whatever, that, that could be an interesting thing too, but I don't know. Well, Alonzo is Renault's most recent Formula One world champion. So there's that's that. That's true. And I mean, and that's true. I mean, Kimi Raikkonen is Ferrari's most recent Formula One champion. So ah, there could, there's some, what would you call that? Serendipity there? I don't know if even that's the right word. I don't think it is. Sebastian <laughs> Sebastian Vettel is Red Bull's most recent world championship. How far back are we going with this? Lewis Hamilton Ooh. is Mercedes' most recent world champion. Well, I think they're actually going to retain him. So 
There you go. It oh. all lines up. Well, there you have it. The silly season, I have to say, overall, is proven a bit disappointing. I was really ready for a crazy silly season, and it just it all mellowed out. So, eh. All the things that could make it big moves, big plays, none of those things worked out to happen. So, eh, what are you going to do? However, I do want to talk about the three Grands Prix that we did not get to podcast on as of yet. One thing that happened in England I think is definitely worth discussing is Nico Rosberg being booed in Britain. That really disappointed me. Yeah, it's a bit weird because you'd think our fans would be Formula One fans on the English-speaking world, a lot of them being in the United Kingdom and surrounding communities. And yet, just about everyone on our page came out in a defense of decency. I don't think anyone on that page said, oh, yeah, you know, I'd rate to boo him. Yeah, screw that guy, whatever. Like, it's just, I don't know if it's just a group think gets going at the uh, at the actual event where somebody starts booing and everyone goes, oh, yeah, screw that guy. Let's start booing him or whatever. But it's not sportsmanlike. It's not a classy way to go. It's not a nice welcome to our country as you know part of a Grand Prix is kind of this nationalist uh, thing. It's sort of not how, I don't think anyone should be really proud of themselves if they're in that crowd and booing anybody, really. I mean, these are all three, three people that came at the top three positions in a race and they all entered and, and they all, this is where they came. So booing seems like such a not, a, not just a blunt instrument, but sort of a dumb thing because you're not really making an argument about, oh, I support this guy and I'm not a big fan of that guy because of the way this happens or whatever. It's not a reason thing. It's just, boo. It's just, that's just dumb. And it just doesn't reflect well on a group of people. And when that small group of people is representing your country on a world stage or whatever, it's just it's unfortunate, really. Even if there are times, of course, when you, you look at a move someone made and you go, ah, oh, Nico, that's not cool. Doesn't seem right to boo somebody on the podium. And then it's not just one person on the podium, right? So it's the whole crew and everybody's up there and it just becomes an awkward situation, which is an all, already an awkward situation. Any Formula One podium for some stupid reason is always an awkward affair of uh, weird interviews and stuff. It's just, I don't know, it's not a good look. I am glad to report that at the following races that that was not a challenge, even from Germany, where, of course, Rosberg had a problem, but it was his own problem on the start, you know, not getting away well, and that there was no Nico Lewis drama and there was no reason to boo one guy or the other. And in fact, it was only Lewis on the podium and there was just the Red Bulls and those guys were super excited because they're Max and Smiley. So I'm happy to move on from the, the booing situation and uh, hopefully it doesn't come up again. I agree. I, it was disappointing to see. And I think the point you made about just the decency of being Formula One fans, let's not forget driving a Formula One car is exceedingly difficult and to do it as well as Nico Rosberg did to be on the podium of the British Grand Prix, that's a huge, impressive feat and deserves respect. I almost feel the booing was retribution to the Austrian fans for booing Hamilton after what happened, the altercation that those guys had at that race. That was a different Grand Prix and that was nothing Nico did. And even if you completely 100% blame Nico for that incident, he got the worst of it. He ended up fourth. Lewis Hamilton won the race. It was really unfortunate it went down the way it did. And I just think all that did was carry on the tenseness between those two, which if you're into drama, maybe that's what you wanted to keep doing. But as you said, Jim, thankfully that is not carried forward beyond Britain. When I wrote my blog post about it, I was very happy to see it was just about universal support of the booing that happened was wrong. So I was very happy to see that amongst the Fun With Cars Formula One community. So that was definitely something that I appreciated. Moving on to Hungary, Jim and I weren't there, but Jamie Price was. He shot some beautiful photos, as always, and he recorded a little bit of audio for us. So take it away, Jamie. 
Good morning, Fun With Cars. It is Jamie Price. I'm sitting in Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris, France, where I'm returning back home to uh, North Carolina from the Hungarian Grand Prix. Not a whole lot to talk about from this race. Wasn't terribly interesting for anybody that was there or watching on the TVs from what I saw or have seen or heard from other people that were watching. Definitely not the season's most exciting race. If you haven't seen the race, you can pretty much watch lap one and then turn off the TV because that's how they finished. It was a cool weekend. I enjoyed coming to the Hungara Ring for the first time. It's a great track, good for photography, really enjoyed it. There's almost no catch fences anywhere around it, which is a very rare thing in Formula One these days because normally it's three wide catch fences that just make it difficult to do the job, but that's all in the name of safety. Thought it was a lot of fun coming to Budapest. I'd never been to uh, Hungary before for any reason, and um, I very much enjoyed coming. It's definitely one of those old-school circuits. In addition to the catch fences or lack thereof, it's just got a great feel. The fans yesterday were really passionate. You could see how big the crowd was, and you know they let fans run onto the circuit after the race. I couldn't believe how many people were there. It was crazy, and everybody was waving flags and blowing air horns. It definitely has that old-school F1 feel. I really enjoyed being there and, and experiencing the Hungarian Grand Prix. Obviously, championship-wise, things have heated up quite a bit. Um, Lewis Hamilton's taken the lead, and I don't know that Nico Rosberg will get it back. You know, Hamilton just seems like he's in a, a good place, and he's comfortable and relaxed. You see him walking around the paddock or in the press conferences. He just doesn't really seem to be bothered by much. Rosberg just... He's never really done it for me as a driver. I have nothing against him. He just doesn't have tons of personality. I have other issues with Hamilton, but between the two of them, I think Hamilton is a is a more entertaining world champion and a more entertaining driver. But with that, I don't know that I have too much more to, to talk about from the Hungarian Grand Prix. I think hopefully Hockenheim is a better race. I think Ferrari and Red Bull have a lot of catching up to do. Mercedes just looks really strong. I, uh, I will not be there. I'm heading back home, and I will be going to Monza as my next Formula One race. But hope everyone is well, and I will chat with you all soon. Thank you, as always, Jamie, for the report. And let's go ahead and add Hungary to the list of Grand Prix I would like to visit because it sounds lovely. And I've heard good things from Jamie and in the past. So uh, there's very few races that we hear a report from and say, you know what, I really don't want to go there. You know, I guess Malaysia sounds really, really hot. But, you know, Hungary sounds awesome. I've never been to the country. It seems like it'd be really cool. And it's just uh, it's a cool track and has uh, a lot of good history to it. So that sounds like a win. And I bet Hungarian food is delicious. We haven't done a taste of the race for Hungary in oh. quite some time. But uh, Hungarian goulash. That's a good yeah, one. Yeah, it's a good one. I'm all in for the kind of Eastern European, man, the, the Polish food and Russian food and all that. So uh, Hungarian food, I think, is right going to be right in that pocket. We have not yet partaken in our taste of the race for Germany either. And I can definitely get down on some schnitzel or sauerkraut or bratwurst. Stop do, talking. I am know. so hungry right now from you saying <laughs> that. <laughs> but Germany also did happen. That was the one that happened just the other day. And that was the lead into the summer break. And that was yet another victory for Lewis Hamilton, but not from pole position. Nico Rosberg had a brilliant pole qualifying lap. Hamilton had no answer to it. Hamilton was sulking. He was furious with himself. It wasn't anything real specific that Hamilton did terribly wrong. It was just that Nico put together a really solid lap. 
Hamilton just tried just a little bit too hard one spot, locked up the brakes, and that was kind of the end of it. And I think that's why Lewis was so down was because it wasn't just one particular mistake where he could say, yeah, it was a good session and I was going to be on pole, but whatever, but I had this one mistake. But it was just like you mentioned in your, in your article, it was just, he was looking for looking for something to throw. You know, he was just like so upset. And, uh, and, right. and because there was no thing he could point to to say, oh, well, I had this bad set of tires or the balance was this or that. It was just kind of like, well, um, yeah, the team did great. Can I go home now? <laughs> he had, you know, no one to blame but himself. And uh, I guess when he blamed himself, this is what it looks like. I didn't think it was that big of a deal. And that turned out uh, with Rosberg just for whatever reason, just seems like he, I don't know if it was extra wheel speed or was bogging or what exactly the problem was, but he got the, the initial right off the line looked okay, but then everyone else accelerated away and he just kind of didn't, I think he was fourth, maybe even fifth for a moment in the uh, very beginning of the race. I'm pretty sure that on his launch, it was too much wheel spin because as he was accelerating, you could see him correcting a little bit. And if he was bogging down, he wouldn't have to correct. He would just have to let the engine catch up. So pretty sure too much wheel spin. He just wasn't accelerating and, and hooking up. And those Red Bulls, man, those guys really made it out of the gate really quickly. And Hamilton was just up front with no worries, essentially. I mean, the Red Bulls had had good pace, but it never seemed like they were really threatening Lewis. So he was able to do his race and carry on. It was not super exciting there at the front, but between sort of second, third, fourth, fifth, there was a lot of good back and forth and uh, some good looking stuff. And then Nico Rosberg had a uh, bad pit stop later on. He had the five second penalty that was awarded to him for pushing was it, uh, Verstappen, pushing him off track. That turned out to be like an eight second penalty because there was a stopwatch error. I mean, what, you know, it was just like, it really just came unraveled for him. And then after that, it was also a slow stop. It was just like, <laughs> could have just kept getting worse. Mercedes did not make the day any better for Nico, but Nico was the root cause of the problem. Yeah. That maneuver that he pulled on Verstappen was eerily similar to what happened in Austria, but even more blatant and obvious. I kind of defended Nico a fair amount after Austria, but after what I saw here, I was like, oh, that was so obviously deliberate. The one thing I'll say, though, Verstappen didn't hit Nico. They didn't hit each other. Verstappen was still the one that got ahead out of the deal because Nico got the penalty, but no cars were damaged, so... It does show that Nico was probably being more deliberate than he wasn't with the Austria incident, but it also shows Hamilton certainly did not have to run into Rosberg to prove any kind of point. It was a really fascinating, almost repeat of Austria that we had in Germany. So maybe it's the German-speaking racetracks that Nico feels obligated to do these things. I don't know. That's totally going to be the thing, I'm pretty sure. Spa, though, being in Belgium, there's, that, is that considered a German-speaking racetrack? You think he's going to be uh, he's going to be back on the whole push people off track situation? Ooh, yeah, that could be the case. Yeah, that's possible. That race weekend starts on August 26th. The actual race, the Grand Prix, is August 28th, a few weeks away from now. We saw a lot of support for the Netherlands in general and Max Verstappen in particular here in Germany. And I think that's definitely going to be a thing in Belgium as well. That's essentially his home race for Verstappen, that is. That seems like there's probably going to be yeah, seas of uh, orange for uh, support for Max and uh, lots of Red Bull fanatics going on. So that should be uh, an exciting time with almost home support for him and seeing how, uh, seeing how if that if gives him a little boost and uh, allows the Red Bulls to you know hang right there with the Mercedes or at least challenge for you know victory over the Ferraris in their own little battle they've got going. That's probably going to be a very positive thing for Max going forward. He can feel good about defending as he did. Um, he got pushed off the track, but like you say, didn't crash and destroy his car or anything. And it was, you know, the team radioed in to uh, push for a penalty for Rosberg. And of course that happened. It's tough because this is going into the summer break, of course. So we've got five weeks with four races in them. 
Uh, and now we've got some much needed time off for everybody. But Lewis just has so much more momentum now because, as Jamie mentioned, he took over the lead of the championship in Hungary, further extended that, and it's sort of Rosberg can only have himself and his clutch or whatever to blame for that happening. So, yeah, Lewis is now 19 points in front of Nico in the championship. So right, not a full race win. And Lewis says, oh, I don't really consider myself in the lead of the championship unless I've got a 25-point buffer, which is just one of those things people say, but doesn't really make sense yeah, because, of course, he is the leader. That's lead not of how math works. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but that's really got to take the wind out of Rosberg's sails for the summer break, though. It's just like all the momentum has gone Lewis's way from a really strong opening of the season for Rosberg. And it seems like yet again, he may you know end up being second guy in the championship. Of course, we've got plenty of racing to go. So it's not like anything's sewn up by any means, but he's now 19 points behind and uh, has to do well and also do well at times when Hamilton is not doing well. For the moment, Hamilton is uh, scoring the points, making the wins, doing the thing. So tough guy to beat at the moment. The other team making the points is Force India. They are now just 15 points behind Williams. Force India, if this current trend continues, will be fourth in the Constructors' Championship. For that team, with their much more limited history and resources, that's extremely impressive. I'm kind of a de facto Force India fan for the underdog story of it all, and it's really hard for me because I'm also a huge Williams fan for several, several reasons. In a lot of ways, it's seen two favorites go against each other, and that part's really disappointing. But Still, Force India has gone through a lot of ups and downs off track, yet it's been a pretty steady climb in stature on track. If they secure fourth in the championship, that gives them some real authority and some extra money to become a more and more competitive team. I'm really fascinated to see that. That's another thing that I will definitely keep an eye out when we return in Spa and go on to Monza because it could be really good. And that brings me to predictions. Uh, let's talk looking forward to the future and seeing how we did in the recent past. So three races have gone by. I don't think we need to go line by line through every single one. But I will say in the overall table now, well done to Henry Keys, who leads by five points with only 40 points ahead of Gustavo Barrichello, who has 45 points and a two-way tie for third place between Craig the Kilt Wilson and Graham McLaren Harris. wonder if that's his real middle name. And then it goes back to Nico Rosberg, who's been predicting himself this whole time and uh, on down from there. I myself am in 13th spot, lucky 13th. I had Hamilton pole Rosberg win prediction for the last three rounds, which was not bad, but not great because that kept being the other way around. I kept getting two points because we'd have <laughs> Rosberg pole and Hamilton win, but hey, uh, whatever, I'll take it. It's not, not too bad. Damien is in 29th spot with 87 points and lost a little bit out in the last race, down one. Uh, you, sir, are in 33rd spot with 92 points. You are just the first guy Move on the up, second sir. page. So uh, I am moving up. That is exciting times. So we've done, man, we've done a bunch of races. Belgium is next. That is the spa race. And what do you think? You right now have had Hamilton, Hamilton. That has been doing very well for you. There haven't been too many uh, dramatic cars getting set on fire and qualifying or starting from the grid because something weird happened or whatever. So are you going to stick with that? Or what are you thinking? I'm absolutely going to stick with that. Mercedes has tons of pace. Hamilton is very good around spa. I just don't see that changing. And it'll be interesting to see where Rosberg goes with his head or if he really builds up again, just gets super tense. But it's more likely that Hamilton will have the edge here mentally over Rosberg, and I think that's pretty much all it's going to take. However, I am going to add a little spice to my prediction. I am also going to predict, unofficially of course, 
because I can't make it official in any official capacity in predictions. However, I think Kimi Raikkonen will be on the podium. I feel that that is pretty darn possible. He has had as good a form as he's had ever since he's returned to Ferrari. He knows Spa extremely well. He's been quick there. I think he can do it again. There you go. That's a, uh, I would say, bold choice, but that I think is a pretty sensible choice. But you, so you think Ferrari's going to get their uh, head out of their uh, rear ends and get themselves figured out to get some pace better than Red Bull, though? Hmm. We'll see. I think I'm going to switch drivers. I've had this whole Rosberg is going to win from Hamilton taking the pole. I'm going to switch that around, uh, which I guess in this case makes me line up with Damien's prediction of Rosberg pole, Hamilton win. Although now that they say that, I don't think Hamilton, I don't know. Uh, I'm, it's it's <laughs> like, what I'm really trying to, to bang against is if something stupid happens in qualifying, you know, the, whatever, it's raining and then Hamilton's out in Q1 and then a bunch of other people get hosed, but I'm like, oh, I'm brilliant there because Rosberg made it through. You know, I'm trying to play the odds a little bit with everyone else on this Hamilton bandwagon. But you're trying to play the low odds. That's <laughs> that's the only problem. Like, what if Hamilton's car gets struck by lightning? Ah, Right, but so then. then people could get, like, you know, 20 points or whatever. But, if like, but like, Rosberg's not going to be that far behind. And, of course, I could get hosed, too. But, yeah, whatever. I'm going to stick with it. I am going to, say, Rosberg pull, Hamilton win, make that prediction for Spa, or I guess until we change it further, if I don't think of it between now, if we don't have a podcast and we uh, have many races that go on without we changing it. So, Well, the number of babies in our lives will go up by then. Yeah, that's a safe bet uh, with a, between now and what four weeks from now <laughs> yeah. of all the predictions to make that's the safest that is one. a We're, safe one yeah that is quite safe all right so i think did i hear you agree that whatever you're going to name your child after whoever's in the lead of the predictions at the time that he's born right so that's probably going to be henry key so congratulations it's going to be henry that's correct that is not at all what i Unless said gustavo absolutely right about that not being said. gustavo is a good one too though that, about your wrong that could be that could be a good name gustavo Double Warner. I could see a, a GB in our lives and be like, what does GB stand for? And be like, uh, I don't know, Gustavo. I was going to make a joke about Nico Ross, but then I remember that I, we named my son Nico, so never mind. Because <laughs> <laughs> who would ever name their kid Nico? What kind That's of weirdo? Silly. Oh, wait. Hmm. <laughs> oh, boy. So, yes. Yes. Oh, boy, indeed. I just have nothing but the best wishes for you and Anne-Marie and your new son coming into the world. And I'm super excited for you guys. Thank you, sir. So uh, hopefully it's right after you post the episode online because I happen to know that editing audio and you try to also have to take care of a newborn baby and all that is tricky. So here's hoping all the timing comes together well. Hopefully we'll have excellent news from you on the internet soon. Best wishes to everyone involved. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Stay tuned to funwithcars.com where, of course, you can comment on the episodes directly. You can see the articles and uh, little opinion pieces and things that Robin posts in the meantime. You can see our statistics page, which is kept up to date and uh, has lots of facts and figures and good numbers to track. There are links there as well to our presence on Twitter and Facebook, where there's always fun conversations happening. And I think that's it. Thank you, as always, for listening. I am Jim Lau. And I'm Robin Warner, not a father for the last time. All right, if I may, can we talk silly season for a moment? Silly it up, dog. <laughs> <laughs> you need to do me a favor and not edit that out. <laughs> wow, that's a good one. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see how that plays. <laughs>